Hello and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week. Please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And let me say a special thanks to my current Patreon supporters who make this possible. Mara and Chap, Charles, Donna, Haley, Heather, Janice, Joan, Josh, Kevin, McKenna, Nora, Rachel, and Rebecca. Thank you so much. Bailey Liu is an installation artist who, for most of her practice, has focused on the use of space to create transformative experiences for herself and the viewer. She experiments with and puts a lot of emphasis on the exploration of materials, process, and time. Drawing from her life and cultural memory, the works often explore issues that she relates to on a personal level and highlight the importance of feminine strength through the use of meaningful repetition, mending, healing, and resilience. And as a teacher who is a working artist, she is also able to guide and inspire her students with the wisdom she has gained doing installations and exhibiting her work all over the world. Here is Bailey. Well, Bailey, thanks for being on my podcast. (laughs) It's my pleasure. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. And it's so cool that you live here in Austin, even though you're working all over the world, really. Mm -hmm. I can't even imagine what that's like. It's home here. And I'd love to do more projects here. Whenever I have an opportunity, I'm really grateful. Yeah. Yeah, my studio is here. My friends and family are here. So um, right now, I'm very happy to have a piece up at Big Medium. Yeah, for the so, Sanctum show. Yes. Fathom, right? Is the name of that piece? Yes, it is called Fathom. Yeah, I actually photographed that show uh, last week. I can send you those photos. I love to see the photos. And I, I also, before you came today, I was thinking how wonderful it is that you um, photographed my show at Texas State Gallery. Yeah, right. Was that 2013? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you kind of get to see the progression, or maybe you've been watching uh, my work and my growth. So it's really nice to be able to sit down and chat with you. Yeah, it's been quite a few years that we've kind of been passing through and seeing each other. That's really neat. So for people that don't know much about you, um, I pulled this one line from your bio on your website, you say you're a visual artist who creates material and process driven site responsive installations. Like, how would you add to that just to help people kind of get a better understanding of who you are? Sure. Um, I make installations. Sometimes I say I make environments. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping to provide a space where people could enter and spend some time. And I'm hoping that experience is transformative even in just the most minute of ways. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to material and process, um, my work depends on genuine connection with the material. 
my choice of material is really important to me. I have to have a real connection and response to the material before I can work with something. And this is why every project of mine uses different materials. Yeah. And process is important because time is important in my work and my practice. For me, I rarely make use of material the way it is. I need to transform it. I need mm-hmm. to explore, experiment, perhaps play with it. To wait for that moment of surprise when the material could surprise me, I see that as the beginning of a concept of a piece. Then I start envisioning what it would become. So there's that process of exploring and getting to know the material and discover something. Then I work from there. In addition to that, time is important for me because of the handmaking process.、Mm-hmm. A lot of my work refer back to women's work. The idea of sewing, or、um, organizing things that's repetitive, and in my view, they're healing. Mending.、Yeah. Mending. For me, the act of sewing is the act of mending, and it is the act of healing. It's very much needed in our time, and I find comfort in putting so much time and effort into my work. And、mm. I usually say that. I feel a sense of responsibility as an artist. I want to offer something that's meaningful, that's worthy of my viewers' time. Yeah. And when I can put in so much time and labor into the work, I then feel like the piece is ready to be shared and offered to my viewers. And I do believe when they come to see a piece, that's what they respond to. There's that intuitive understanding. There's this tremendous amount of work and time that's embedded in the work through the material. Yeah. I just want to back up a little bit because I was thinking of the idea of play,、mm-hmm. and I'm just trying to imagine what it's like to be with you in your studio playing. Like, and I feel like a lot of adults don't play、right. anymore. We need、know? to. We need to remember that. And it's really good to be a mom. And now、yeah. I get to re-experience everything. So my studio is pretty chaotic. It's not neat.、Um, I play with multiple things at one time. Sometimes I might leave something for months. Before I revisit, you know, a certain idea might come. But, oh wait, I need to go back to that experiment. I need that source of information. Like all these physical transformations might be taking place. Sometimes it might take time in itself. For example, I've grown salt crystal. Yeah. On top of reeds, and the crystal will just start climbing on top of this line, and I love that accumulation and crystallization. And physically, it's beautiful, but I think metaphorically, there's a lot that I could explore. And sometimes it's just there's this、um, intuitive sense I want to work with something, but I can't quite figure out how or what it might be yet. So then I play with it. You know, I coil threads. Together and that become a installation of mine, or I stitch fabric together, thinking about the relationship between the needle and the thread and the textile, and then that relates to scissors, right? When we cut, all these sewing and domestic chores bring the tools together, and they then take form in a larger installation or performance. But it has to do with. I'm using the scissors in my studio, relating to my cultural memory growing up in China, how the scissors were used by women there. So there are a lot of things that's constantly going, and I can't really pinpoint say this material is for this project. It's a lot of things coming together and influence one another. Yeah, so you have to, like you say, intuitively observe, identify these materials, even if you don't know what they're, how they're going to be used, and then you. Maybe bring them into your space and experiment with them, or just live with them, and then 
does the material manifest in some form that then creates the idea of the piece or do you have the idea of the piece or it's both that's a really good question so i think the best way to describe maybe i can give you a couple of examples so um i was invited to do a solo exhibition at the chinese culture center in san francisco Mm -hmm. a number of years ago and i thought this is a great opportunity for me to really look at my cultural heritage and think about what i want to say as an artist living in america And this very basic idea came to mind, which is the legend of the red thread, where Mm -hmm. it tells that when children are born, they're connected by an invisible piece of red thread. And this is how they come closer and eventually find each other, regardless how far apart they might be or how many obstacles in between. It's Like true love. (laughs) Like true love or like friendship. Okay. It's it's that connection, the fateful connection. Mm. So then um, I went to residency in Finland before the show. So I brought with me red thread. I'm like, okay, I got red thread. This is my material. Now what do I do with it? So I played with it. I hung it up from the ceiling. I tied knots. Actually, that's an idea I could revisit. I I tied hundreds of knots to make this net in a way, but Mm. it looks broken. So that's one outcome. And then eventually I settled on the coiling. It's this really meditative and quiet action where the entity, this emblem that's collecting that energy and time and become larger and become mm-hmm. this individual has this beautiful movement. Yeah, And also the one piece of thread can be coiled on both ends and become a pair. Yeah, Referring to that legend, it's, it's a really playful and poetic way of thinking, visualizing this legend. And in the installation, I had thousands of pieces of coiled threads. Some of, some of them are connected as a pair. Some of them are single. When I suspend them from the ceiling, they sway in ambient air and they have encounters. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that was a hopeful hmm. project. And some of my other projects are a lot heavier. This summer, I created a project called Each and Every. It's mm-hmm. an installation performance piece. In this case, um, I was inspired both by the space and also what was happening at our current time. So I went to visit Mad Art Studio in Seattle. And I was very taken by the red brick wall on the interior of the gallery space. You have these exposed red brick wall recording the industrial past. This was a factory space. Yeah. And I just noticed the line in between the bricks is gray, it's mortar. It's this powdery substance once activated by water has so much strength to hold the brick together. It become the wall. The wall become the building. And that's the moment I thought, oh, that will be a really interesting material to use in combination with something I've been playing with for a few years, which were my daughter's clothes. Mm. At the time, the national conversation was focusing on the migrant children being taken away from their parents. This was last summer. This impossible combination between children's clothes that's used that holds so much tenderness from my own experience, clothing, dressing, and carrying my daughter. And this intense sadness and 
It's it's to this day I I cannot articulate or understand what happened、mm. or what is happening or why is this happening. So as an artist, I thought the best thing I could do through the sense of guilt and this burden is to make an art piece. Yeah. So I thought about taking the cement, you know, a scene from the mortar line,、mm-hmm. combine it with this soft material, which is kids' clothing, to talk about this impossible situation that cannot be described, which is taking. Young children away from their parents, and put them in impossible places. That pain and that burden was best visualized through this pairing of materials. If we're、mm-hmm. going back to materiality,、yeah. so I think with those two projects, you know, one is earlier and one is very recent. Perhaps this is a good way to explain to our listeners how I choose to use material, the reason I use them, and how do I bring. The content and my intention into the project. Yeah, a thought that I had when you were talking about the clothing is almost like the trauma of that experience. I could almost imagine being frozen in the child as、yeah. like a trauma. It is, you know, and that makes me think of the clothing being、yeah. frozen in a way. Yeah, in, in, in place or in time, in form, in form, in place, in time. I see them as both being preserved and destroyed at the same、mm, time. There's、yeah. so much tenderness; you can still see the folds, the ruffles, a little bit of color coming through. But at the same time, they are frozen in that state. And there's a there are a lot of dichotomies actually in your work too. There just are just like that. Oh, I'm wondering then, as I often do with people, like maybe we could go back to the beginning, and because you've already mentioned China, and I obviously. It's a huge influence on you—the culture, the history, legends, fables. Like, where did it all start? Because I know that the state—I did a little bit of research—and the state that you were born in is kind of in between Mongolia, Russia, and North Korea. So that、yes. must be interesting. <laughs> I don't know. First of all, it was very cold. Okay. <laughs> so、um, I compared to Maine, perhaps.、Uh, yeah. um, it, it's. Uh, Manchuria. It's the northeast corner of China. Yeah. So I was born in a rural village in northeast China, and the province is called Jilin. My parents were among the 16 million Sendang youth during China's Cultural Revolution. So they were high schoolers. They did not finish high school. It, it was in their third year of high school. The government decide young people need to go to the countryside to be reeducated. So they went down to the village, and the goal is that they will、uh, perform physical labor so their mind can be cleansed, and so they、mm. will be agreeable to the Communist Party's、um, directives. Wow! And there was a beautiful love story in there, actually.、Oh, okay. So my mom was, was <laughs> being.、Um, It's now the draft, but she was being sent down, and my dad decided to follow her.、Aww. So they were first loves in high school, and it was really wonderful because a lot of times, young female students will go down to the countryside. They end up marrying、um, village、uh, farmers, and so on. They they end up staying. Yeah. So the reason my parents were able to eventually come back to the cities because they married each other, and we lived in. They lived in the village for ten years. My sister and I were born in the village in these handmade adobe houses. So, if you have a chance to go visit my website, there is an earlier project that's a replica of their handmade home. And I see that as the beginning of my career as、yeah. an artist to really look back to the beginning where I started, where my parents started, how that influenced me as a person and as a maker.
my years in the village was between you know when I was born to when I was four years old. But those years were so important to me. Um, I really influenced how I see the world and how I see material, mm. how I see the handmaking process. Everything we lived with were handmade. You know, my mom, along with all the village women, they would sew everything. It's it's a time where you can't just go to the store and buy stuff. And you don't really have the money to do so. So all our clothes, from summer shirts all the way to winter thick cotton-lined jackets to comforters, it's all sewn by women. So after they work in the fields, cook and clean, they just sit together and sew and they'll talk to each other about everything, about their kids, their life. They would sew. So that first memory hmm. is so um, ingrained in my mind and that's why this idea of sewing come back over and over again in my work. And for me, sewing is not, it's not a hobby. It's not craft. It's a necessity for life. So when I sew, I'm recalling those images of these women sitting together, clothing their family members, really trying to care for, mm. you know, those people they they love. And, um, and just working all day long. Just working like all the time. Every day. <laughs> until, you know, um, when it's time to go to bed and you wake up and work again. So for me, sewing is, is just household chore it's work it is not decorative it's not beautiful it so when i sew it's always utilitarian you know i'm stitching things together in each and every this most recent project i was mending torn or damaged kids clothes mm-hmm. back um together so that they could potentially have a new life so that's the beginning and then when i was four my parents came back to the city um they there were just really rare opportunity. They could go back to the university and they both took advantage of, mm. of that opportunity. It's not many people. They're called a lost generation. They lost their opportunity for education. So mm. my parents were among the very lucky few. Um, but because the policy that the government had at the time, kids weren't allowed on university campuses. So my sister and I were sent to live with different relatives Sometimes together, sometimes apart. Mm. And this is another layer of very deep personal reason why I made each, each and every thinking about a migrant children's experience relating back to mine as a four-year-old little girl. But my situation was so much better, even though I was away from my parents, but I was still with relatives. I cannot imagine yeah. what, what, what these kids are experiencing. And so all these were woven into the project both my thoughts as a mother having a six-year-old my thoughts as as a child growing up in this upheaval and and chaos back in china and imagining the pain and suffering of these kids now yeah so you had to be separated from your family because of a government policy but it Mm -hmm. wasn't a ripping apart it was like a okay well we just have to live separately for a while no one no one took my arm and and took me away but there was that shock of where did my parents go you know Mm. when you're four you don't really know what happened so you were able to reunite with them eventually yes four years later when they Mm. graduated so my sister and i went back to live with my parents and Mm -hmm. um, yeah that's another chapter of our lives yeah when did you I don't want to skip over anything, but I also do want to talk about a lot of other things. But, you know, when did you 
come to the United States then? Or is there anything relevant that we should talk about before then? I, I would like to mention, so when I was a teenager, my family moved from the northeast China, which is industrial and is um, economically not very advanced, to the southern coastal city of Shenzhen. It's one of the four earliest um, special economic zones when China opened up the market. Hmm. So China has this very interesting situation, right? They have communist government control, but they have market economy, which is ad adapting the capitalist format. Yeah. So people can have their cars, they can have their own apartments, and so on and so forth, even though the government structure is communism. So there's this very interesting mixture. So my parents moved us to Shenzhen. Shenzhen at the time, in the late 80s, um, was a factory town. It's a manufacturing town. So I remember that shift between the north to the south. And then you, you just, every day, what you see the most are migrant workers. They mm. will come from rural areas. They come to the city to work. And there are thousands of them, countless of them. They come out um, in the morning to go to the factories. I see them as a human river. They surge into the gate and they work all day. And then I dusk they come back out was there a sense of oppression or were they happy to be there or they were there to find a better life okay. just like all immigrants when mm -hmm. they leave home to go to a new place they go there to provide labor to make money to send back home yeah but that was such an intensely um different and interesting time and then i see that form of labor this handmade but it's not a village woman sitting together it's rows of migrant workers in factory buildings they're repeating all the same action they're making what sneakers shirts yeah. eyelashes you you name it and to be sent out of china so china was, was growing but it's on the back of the labor of these yeah. anonymous people they're migrant workers does it ever upset you that people have such a negative the way they talk so negatively about like oh that's made in china or something it's like it's <laughs> crap or something you know i mean does that bother there, you i mean there's truth to that there are a lot of things that i see connections between the migrant workers are not that different than the immigrant workers here where they're looking looked down upon, their labor's cheap, they're seen as outsiders. The Shenzhen people didn't really care about them. They just mm. they're just here to work in a few years they'll go back. And they're always young, right? And then when you think about immigrants and the issues we're looking at, the experience they have, it's not that different. And for me what's interesting also is that there's this beautiful um tactile experience of the handmade and then there's this numbing relentlessness of the factory labor and these two labor come together when i'm in my studio working away for hours i think about both yeah so this is the reason i didn't want to skip this yeah yeah Shenzhen, yeah. you know so it's from the village to the city and then from the city to the u.s mm -hmm. and those are the three phases of my life that deeply influence what i make and what i what I think about as a person. Yeah, and it almost, in what you're talking about, these migrant workers coming into, they're making this sacrifice to come in and do this work for mm -hmm. others. I mean, it makes me think of the work that you do cr to create your installations. It's yeah. like a sacrifice 
of your time and your energy and your emotions to create this thing that could benefit others. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just... Does that make sense? <laughs> it does. It does. And and there are so many ways to look at it. Um, for me, I'm always looking for the things that we share, even though we're so different. Yeah. You know, the red thread connection is shared. It's a very Chinese story, but that connection happens all over the place. When we travel to install the work in different countries, people share their stories with me. And I see that as a... It's such an amazing reward for me, mm. um, just just to collect these stories. And the more I travel with the work, the more I understand that legend is not just about Chinese yeah. culture or connection. It's it's about human connection. And coming back to my own practice, I realize I'm trying to find those overlapping areas that, regardless of our difference, we share this, like this care and love for our children. It doesn't matter what race we are, what country we're from. I know the pain of that mother. I mean, I can imagine a tiny bit of her pain because I'm a mother. And I can imagine a tiny bit of the pain of the child because I was away from my parents for four years. You know, it's it's that little bit of understanding that gave me that doorway I could enter and perhaps make something to offer that environment for someone to come in to be with the work for a while. And maybe take something with them. And maybe it's meaningful. I hope. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like, really, it feels like the news is all about differences and who's against who. And, and yeah. in the end, we're people. And there are these things. There are so many things we share. Our needs, our desires, our hope. Mm-hmm. So what spurred the move to the United States? And, and well, let's. I'll just back up real quickly, though. Was there any point during this time before you, when you were living in China, that you knew what art was, knew what an artist was, did art? Like, I mean, when did that kind of enter your world? Um, I would say my understanding of art was very basic. I always loved to draw as a child, and I was always very good at it. I was the art kid in class oh, okay. throughout my time um, in China in schools. But when I went to college, I did what a lot of Chinese students do. They listen to their parents. And my yeah. parents said, don't study art. So <laughs> right. I didn't study art. Um, I went to college for two years in China. So I studied Chinese literature. And that's my second love, if I could ah. rank them. I, I'm more than grateful I'm an artist. But if I'm not an artist, I would love to be a writer. But moving to America, it's interesting. I sort of left that to the side because I was confused. I was like, if I write, who do I write for? Do I send this writing back home? Mm, yeah. Do I write in English or Chinese? My English writing is not going to be as good as my Chinese writing. And there's that confusion. So I put writing aside. Mm. And there's, since we're talking, there's yeah. this dream. <laughs> like when I have time, when I eventually am ready, I would love to go back to it. And I still don't know if I should write in Chinese or English. Yeah. Yeah. That might be an ongoing question. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's exciting. Thanks for sharing that with me. Yeah. I hope you can do that. I I would love to one day. Mm. Is there, I'll just ask this quick question. Is there, I imagine there must be a lot that someone that only speaks English is missing out on when it comes to Chinese literature. I mean, there's translations, but I'm sure they don't do it justice. Right. 
It's like the word snow in、um, Native American language. There's 18 ways to say it. I was told that story actually、yeah. by my husband, and I thought that's very similar to Chinese. There, there might be one thing, but it could be spoken in so many different ways, in so many layers, and that's what I. Love so much about Chinese language. That's what I miss so much. And sometimes I feel so clumsy when I have to speak in English. I'm trying my best, but there are so many other things.、Mm. Or maybe in Chinese, I can just say these two words, and they mean so much more.、It's、like the nuance of it. The nuance the of complexity. it. Complexity. The layering of it.、Mm. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'm. I'm still learning. I'm still learning this language, and I'm trying not to forget. You know, the first one. Do you think in Chinese, and then you you have to kind of translate it into English, or how does it? I think nowadays I probably think in English, and then if I have to give a lecture back in China, I have to think about it.、Hmm. I will be speaking slower, and I have forgotten some words, and that's sad sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure they would come back very quickly. I hope so. I need to start reading <laughs> Chinese more. There you go. More. Yeah. yeah, read your literature and get inspired. Yeah. Yeah. So, what spurred the move to the United States, and what was that like? That must have been really scary. I don't know. I can only imagine. It was.、Um, you know, when when people say culture shock, it's not exaggerating. It's all of a sudden you lose everything you know that you're comfortable, everything you're confident in, your language, for example. I could have a really Wonderful conversation and feel like I'm able to communicate myself, and that's taken away、mm. when I came to the United States. You know, I could survive, but again, like it's that nuance we were talking about. So it's it's really going to a, going back to a very vulnerable place and become quiet. And this is why, you know, as a teacher, when I see a quiet international student, I always go to them. I say, I know how you feel. I was that quiet international student. I know you can overcome this. It will take time. You will speak better. You will feel more confident, and you will、mm. thrive. So I serve as this、um, mentor. I tell them that you can do this because when you th- you see them as being shy, the language barrier is、mm. is so much the reason for that. And it's about all those details, small things that you're not aware of. You know the jokes. People are talking about music. People are talking about literature. People are talking about children's stories. Like as a mom, I realize I don't know any of the American children's stories. Yeah. So I'm learning with my my daughter as we speak. So all these things that's a given. You you don't have that. It's so harder you, to connect. It's harder to connect, and it and you have to then be very strong, brave, and just、mm. you know. Go to work, and you do one thing at a time, and you keep doing your good work. And eventually, when you look back ten or twenty years later, you're like, "Okay, I have survived, and now I'm a whole person again." All those bits and pieces that's just in your being growing up here, we have to kind of collect and then build up、mm-hmm. from that.、Mm-hmm. It's an interesting challenge, but I do think. Having these extremely different experiences makes me a fuller person. I see all of these as really amazing resources for my work.、Yeah. When I think about understanding my viewers from different backgrounds, maybe they're from China, maybe they're from Europe, maybe they're from the South, maybe they're from the North. It's this openness. It's this understanding that's really beneficial. 
for me as a maker and as an artist when I want to share my work. Yeah, it's a compassion that you have have had to develop just imagining or wanting the compassion that or you know the the compassion that you received probably when you moved here hopefully you know that you would have wanted to receive you know like you want to give that to mm-hmm. someone else yes and there's there there were challenges and there were a lot of compassion there were a lot of kindness and there were a lot of misunderstanding but all of these they come together become this multi faceted multi flavored Mm-hmm. life experience and looking back i can't think but really appreciate it yeah. you know when you could overcome those struggles or difficulties that make us make us stronger right yeah. so resilience is something i really value um i think about it in my work so when i'm working long hours producing my work it relates to that stubbornness like i'm gonna make this work I don't yeah. know this yet, but I'll do it anyway. Let's figure this out. Or I don't know. I mean, I still don't know the songs. Yeah. <laughs> and then I just tell my friends, I just don't know. And I don't want to share with you my Chinese songs because <laughs> you don't know either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a persistence. And it's just persistence. like you talk about, like just little by little moving yeah, forward. A small step at a time and just keep going and and not give up. And I think that is a quality that's shared by all immigrants, all people mm. come from a different place when they have to adapt, cope and assimilate and really also try not to lose themselves completely. And then yeah. and then with all that said, when you look back and you realize I'm still who I am, but stronger and I know more, I understand more, then I'm at a place I can offer more. Yeah. Because yeah. you had to work so much harder to fit in to understand than someone that's just here and they just take it all for granted. Yeah. Yeah. And I I need to remind myself to not take things for granted now that I'm at a place where I have comfort, I have trust, and I have access to resource. And I need to remind myself I cannot take it for granted. And I need to go to that young student and say, you can do this. It will be difficult, but you can do it. Yeah. I don't... I would like to stay on our... uh, our, uh, timeline about moving to the United States, but I, what you just said made me think of this quote that I saw of yours on the uh, UT website about teaching. You said, I, I believe that the place of a teacher is to, to help students develop into independent, aware, culturally sensitive, and creative individuals. Mm-hmm. That sounds like what you're doing. Yes. Yeah. And it's, I would like to talk about being a uh, professor. Yeah. It's a really good job. <laughs> To teach, it's a huge responsibility, but it's it's an amazing opportunity. You're facing these young minds, and you have this chance to share with them something that's meaningful, perhaps, that will change their life. Hmm. So when you think about that, you know, especially teaching young artists, and I'm an artist myself, there's so much I can share with them. Like, I, I would love to just have conversations with them all the time about everything practical, realistic as to how to be an artist and things that's really fundamental. And I was um, at my smoker and one of the fellow uh, artists in residence did this interview to all of us and he was asking, what is some of the most important thing you would say to your students? Mm, and, yeah, I want to hear this. <laughs> and if I can remember, you know, I will be sort of chopping yeah, it up, yeah, putting yeah. it back together. 
It was、um, how to hold ourselves accountable. There are all these pressure and talks about how do you how do you make your career, how do you、um, make a living, how do you make it sustainable, how do you be an entrepreneur、uh, as an artist. Yeah, and they're all great sounding, very trendy. But at the same time, I want to come back and say. Why did you want to be an artist, and what makes you want to wake up in the morning and run to the studio and make that thing?、Mm. And at the very beginning, it was never for money. It was never for fame. It was something that's driving you, that's eating you inside. You have to get it out, and that's what I said in some form. Yeah. How do we hold ourselves accountable? How do we know we're doing something that's meaningful to ourselves first, and therefore it's meaningful for our viewers? I know I said that earlier, but I think that is something I think about all the time. If I'm spending hours and weeks and months to make this thing, why am I making it? And what does it mean to people when they see it? You know, it has to be beyond "Wow, this is beautiful" or "This is really cool." It has to mean something. Yeah, the why is really important to me and to them, and hopefully something that they remember for a、mm. while, or they could recall some time from now. Or many years from now, that will be amazing. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of teaching, I'm assuming that you moved to the U.S. to study.、Mm-hmm. And what 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 happened? Okay, so coming back, my parents said don't study art, so、right. I studied Chinese literature. So I, I'm basically a transfer student to the U.S. and I chose graphic design, knowing that I'm really interested in art, in visual art, and I have to choose a major that's sustainable. Yeah, so I chose graphic practical, design. Yeah, that's still art. <laughs> yeah, so my undergraduate degree is in graphic design, and、mm. I'm very thankful. Actually, it's really useful skill. I'm、mm. still able to use it to this day. You know, I update my website and edit my images. I can lay out things.、Um, I encourage all my students to have some graphic design skills as a visual artist. It's really good to have. And then、um, I went to graduate school at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. And within maybe a month, I decided I really need to switch major. Oh! And I'm really thankful that they let me. They didn't say,、mm, you know, we admitted you as a graphic designer. Now it's a month into your graduate study, you want to change to make installations, but they let me. And talking about fear, wow, there was、yeah. so much fear. I haven't done many installations. I might have done two or three. But really, on the side of my design and drawing practice. Yeah. But I wanted to go into space. It's this very clear desire. I want to make things in space. So I did, and they let me. And I remember so frightened.、Hmm. I was in graduate program. I didn't know what being a graduate student meant. I didn't know what. what What does my lead to? I'm jumping away from my safe career path as a graphic designer.、Yeah. I'm going to now make installations, and I did, and I graduated, and then I started teaching, and now I am still teaching and I'm still making installations. I think I made the right switch. I'm passionate about what I do. If I stayed a designer, I think it wouldn't have been the same. I I didn't、mm. have that. I wasn't committed to design. Sorry, my design professors.、Um, I needed to to go into space, and I did. 
Were there any formative experiences you had in that graduate program or people that really influenced you that kind of helped your direction or helped you figure out what you really wanted to do? I had amazing professors in many different fields and in many different ways. But I have to say the choice of becoming an installation artist and starting to work in space started the months after I was in my graduate program. And that was such a clear calling. I just went for it. And from that point on, all my mentors, my professors that came into my um, studio and really helped me out was with me on that path. Hmm. Like they didn't change me anymore because I already know what I wanted to do and I just needed to to know more and how to do it better. So um, a professor of mine, Stephanie Rowden, she's a sound artist. She introduced me to the idea of sound as a material. Hmm. It's amazing. She's this most wonderful, just kind and sweet, supportive faculty that one can ever hope for. She was new at the time and I was new and I had a lot of doubts and she really helped me to go through those doubts and and just encouraged me to continue. And hmm. um I remember when I was when I graduated, she said something and I remember to this day she said, You make the most out of every situation. And I thought that's an amazing compliment coming from my professor. I think she mm. saw the survivor in me, you know, like I might be struggling, you know, trying to figure things out, but I am doing as much as I can and really trying to push it. And maybe also that idea of taking risk, you know, just jumping off to do something. I don't know how yet. Yeah, that was, I don't know, 16 years ago. And I remember she said that. Yeah. And sometimes when I'm facing challenges, I'm like, I need to make the most out of every situation. If even if it's difficult, what do I do to best resolve and make it work? Was there a specific installation that you did when you were in school or soon after school where you felt like, okay, I can do this, <laughs> you know, like this, I, I did it, I did it, I made it, or, yeah, I mean, where you got your confidence maybe, or you just yeah. felt like, okay, I think this is going to work, you know? It's a slow progression of things. What I recall was that I was making a lot of work. I was learning through making and I was showing a lot. And I remember thinking I was a poor artist. I didn't really have a lot of resource or an amazing studio. So whenever I had an opportunity to have a show, I did it. And I see that gallery as the extension of my studio. I just went in there and I made my project. And I learned through that making process. And I have to say, I've been so fortunate because all those projects end up being mostly successful. And then I received the feedback. The, the idea of confidence, I think, is such a gradual building up over the years. And I can never say by the time I graduated or by the time I was three yeah. years after graduation, I was confident. I was just trying to make one project at a time. And anytime I'm making it, I'm never sure this is going to work, I, but I know I need to make it. And once it's done, then I have these mostly positive feedback coming my way. Those encouragements are really important for me like to continue on. It's like this positive reinforcement, right? I have this desire to make. I work really hard. I make it. And then I wait to see what people think. And they're like, oh, this is really interesting. This is really um, working. This is something I'm really responding to. 
And then, of course, there are things like this could be different or better. And then I have the energy and desire to make the next project. And I had a fellow graduate student ask me, why do you show so much? I said, because I didn't have the space to make the work. It's an extension of my studio. Mm. And I tell my students that too. When you have an opportunity to show, instead of waiting when you're ready, when you know you have a good piece, you just do it. Your good piece will come with that engagement, with that commitment. Yeah. And then you grow. So don't wait. Just do it. Yeah. It's like having a deadline. You just kind of rise to the occasion, right? right? Yeah. And if you don't have a deadline, then maybe you just not do it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So there were there any specific failures or criticisms that you think were pivotal for you that actually ended up being very positive or very giving you momentum or were like great learning experiences? I think this might sound weird. I don't I can't think of one specific one. Mm-hmm. But looking back at m- at my projects, I see those that weren't as successful. And I see those that weren't as um, meaningful for me. Hmm. And then I learn from looking back. I don't regret making them. Yeah. Just just like I said, I just do it. I'll, I'll, I'll keep making these projects. And from that experience, I learn. I'm trying to think of an example. I mean, there, this, there, this is a very small one. I don't see it as a failure. It's actually a project I do still like. I created a piece using salt water. So I I had the chemistry department manipulate and fabricate these vessels. So they have a stop cock at the bottom. Mm -hmm. So I had saturated salt water inside. And I could control the speed of it dripping down. And I had clear vinyl steps laid under. So the water would drip and travel downwards through all these steps. All the way down to another vessel. There are two on either end, and there's one on the bottom, right? So the steps go down this way. Yeah. The piece is called D-Dot. It's on my website, so you're going to go see it. <laughs> and then, um, without thinking too much, I think this should be a cycle, so I need to come in and bring it back up. So I'm physically changing this bottom vessel when it's full, back to top. Mm-hmm. And they become a piece that's so high maintenance. I had to go in the gallery every day to make the cycle happen. So that's... Maybe a lesson, but maybe it's a funny story. And I was like, maybe that's not sustainable. You know, if this is, or maybe it is, if it's in a museum, someone else can do it. <laughs> but this is a piece where I just tended to, hmm. like every day. And that's a piece where, even though in terms of form, it looks very, how do I say, um, it's not culturally specific. But the title of the piece, Dida, refers to the sound of clock ticking. And also the sound of water dripping in Chinese. Hmm. So Dita, Dita, Dita. It's like TikTok, TikTok. <laughs> yeah. And the very first clock in China was made using the mechanism of dripping water. Oh, wow. So in poetry, they refer to time, especially at nighttime. You hear that sound of water dripping. It's the mind going and you're not sleeping. And the poet is thinking about some profound thoughts. Yeah. And they hear the Dita, Dita. And and that's very beginning project. I did it right after graduate school. And this is one of those shows, you know, they say, would you like to do this piece? And I did. And 
looking back from that piece, I realized that this idea of the the cultural reference is always in me, even though I'm making something. It's a it's a glass vessel that's heated and manipulated, and you have this form that's very clean, is is white and clear. It looks very sterile and contemporary, perhaps, but it has to also always relate back to that idea of you know somewhere where I came from. Yeah, yeah. And how how supportive have your parents been? Like when you decided to move <laughs> and study graphic design, and then switch to st- installation art. So um, <laughs> that's a good that's a good question. Um, and my parents, of course, had control over my choice of what I study when I was in China. Not control, but influence. Yeah. yeah. And I listened to them as a good kid would. But then I realized once I came to the U.S., their reach is really far. And when I switched from graphic design to installation, I didn't really ask them anymore. And I just did it. And their concern was eased a few years later when I was starting to teach and I had some security in my life. And then they were fine with it. But there was a funny story. Now, going back to the house I made, that's a replica of their handmade home. At the art farm? At art farm. Yeah. Art farm is an artist residency program in Nebraska. So it's really in the middle of nowhere. It's a very rural area. And it's still there. It's house. still there. My house is still there. <laughs> so I was trying to make this house. There's this crazy idea that came to me after I saw they just excavated the basement, they moved the barn onto our farm. So they need to make a basement. So they dug out all this clay. It's beautiful, clean, pure red clay. And they put a picture of the clay in the residency brochure saying 350 tons of free clay for artists to use. And this is also right after graduate school. I had no money. I'm like, free material at this yeah. quantity. I must use it. And the idea of making the house came. This is a farm. They have a sculpture prairie. It's looking at a cornfield. I was from a farm. I was born in a little adobe, basically a mud house. And I thought, I can use the clay to make a house. And this is the house that my parents built that I was born in. Of course, I scaled it down. It's maybe about two-thirds of the real size. So these houses are very humble. They're, you know... They have one-room houses or two-room houses. The one we had was one room. So you basically have a little area for cooking, and then you have a platform bed that's called Kong. So the stove is heating dinner, and the woman is cooking, and there's a tunnel under the platform bed. It's made of adobe bricks as well. So the heat of the cooking travels through the tunnel, mm. under the bed, goes through the chimney on the other side, and go out. So by the time dinner is served... The Kang is warm. And this is the only heat source in those houses in northern China. Think Maine. Like frozen (laughs) out. That's the only heat source, right? There's no running water either. So you go to the well and everything's frozen and you have to struggle through, you know, over the ice, get your water and you bring it home, you cook, you boil, you do your thing. But I, I loved, you know, when I think about space, I love that very small, humble space where it supports the family life and the cooking. The heat is not wasted. The heat is preserved in adobe bed and then you sleep on it throughout the night. So by morning, it's pretty cold. (laughs) And the men of the house get to sleep on the warmest end 
Oh, okay. And then the kids in between and the woman's on the other side, of course, right? So the reason I wanted to make the house, there are so many, of course. Um, So these type of home are made usually for a young man who's about to get married. And, you know, he wants to build a home. So all the men in the village come together to help him. So they make this house. And I remember vaguely remembering men are working on the house. Women would come to bring them food and water. And then they'll go away. It's a men's job to make the house for the men. As a Chinese daughter, I'm in America, I'm making my life. And I thought, it would be wonderful to make my own house. You know, it's this dream, right? I was renting apartments. I'm like, I'm going to make a house. I'm going to make my house. So I went to Art Farm and I was intimidated just by the idea. And I was sitting down, I remember, with the director then. I said, here's an idea. I was going to make something else. And then... By the way, I also have this other crazy idea. I don't know if it's doable, but I wanted to make a house. And their eyes lit up. They're like, you need to do the house. You need to do the house. (laughs) I'm like, okay, thank you. Sure, let's do the house. Um, So I had two months to make a house. Mm. It's two-thirds of the real scale. It's about maybe 11 feet tall. It's still a house. So during those two months, I spent six weeks to make Adobe bricks. And of course, I've never done this before. So I called my dad. We talked on the phone and he sent me drawings. And I th- I don't know. Do I have that drawing on my website? Maybe I do. I've seen it in a, video, a presentation. In the presentation. Yeah. yeah, maybe it's not on the web. But he, he's, he's actually a really good draftsperson. He draws and he's an engineer. Yeah. He's very creative. My relationship with my dad wasn't that great. There were many a thing that happened in our time, the separation and so on and so forth. And being a Chinese man, he was very stoic and tough. He has to say of the family. But this whole conversation about the house, I think really softened our relationship. Mm. It really brought us closer. So that's a gift in itself. Yeah. And then talking about parent support. Both of my parents say, you're crazy. Why are you doing the make a model? Make a model that's like two feet tall. You have all the features, all the parts. Then people can appreciate it just the same. I'm like, no, no. I understand. They don't want me to work too hard. Yeah. But I need to make this house. I need it to be at least big enough to really house someone. So I made the house. And I slept in it for a night before I had to run back to Michigan to teach adjunct. You know, This yeah. is after graduate school. And the house is still there. And one of my favorite stories was that Art Farm opened it up and allowed other artists and writers to use it. Mm. So a poet lived in it for maybe a, maybe a month, maybe two, one summer. She wrote on a typewriter and she made a little stove outside and cooked on open fire. Yeah, It's so amazing. And That's she cool. sent me some pictures of her standing in front of the little house. You know, I always draw a connection between that house and the sod houses on the Great Plains. Mm-hmm. People talked to me about it when I was building the house. And when I saw the picture of the poet, who's a young woman, just standing in front of the little house, I'm like, that looked just like a sod house picture in some history books. Yeah, yeah. And when I give a lecture about that project, I say, this is where and this is when I realized this is what my work is about. It's to draw that connection that we don't think about. When you have these houses on opposite ends of the globe, you think we're so different. You're, these people are Asian Chinese. These people are American. They're pioneers. But when it comes to the very basic needs of life, shelter, 
when they have such difficulty in their life, when they have such scarcity of their resources, they reach for the same things, which is mud and grass and found lumber, and they made their hut, their houses, sod houses or adobe houses. So that's why the adobe house on the Sculpture Perry Art Farm is is recalling the sod house tradition. And people saw that. They actually told me. They're like, do you know we have one? A few miles from here, it's still standing. And I love that. I love that connection. And when people can see it. Yeah, that's really cool. How do you think about that piece in relation to a lot of your pieces that are are very temporary? How does that feel to you? Like that, you know, you put all this effort into building that house and it's still there. I mean, it won't be there forever, but some of your, a lot of your other installations are maybe only last a month or something. And then they come down all that effort put into that. How do you... I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. Just kind of the difference. Time and space and gravity are very important to me in my work. And the little house at Art Farm is still a time-based piece. Yeah. This type of home in China will usually last maybe 40 to 50 years. Mm. People maintain them. They actually replaster um, onto the surface of the wall. So they basically mend it every yeah, year. Right. Every spring, usually, I think after winter when there's the freeze and thaw and they try to make it better so it lasts longer. I don't think my little house will last that long because it's really just standing in the elements yeah. and it's slowly returning to the earth mm. that it came from. I see that process as necessary and beautiful in itself. It's just like a lifetime. The house has a lifetime. We have a lifetime. And it's that symbol of, I see it, you know, I say this, it's like a self-portrait. It's a Chinese house standing on a foreign landscape. And I'm trying to make this life in a different place. And then eventually, the house will go away, I'll go away. And then maybe it's the image, maybe it's that memory, that story you leave behind, right? So then it relates to all my other projects when I put all that effort in. It's this this image that I'm sharing and providing mm. and the work will live on in those images and memories. Yeah. It doesn't live as a monument. It doesn't live as this forever thing. But I think about, it's like a play. You go to the theater and you're yeah. profoundly touched by this performance. And then maybe it lives in a video or an image maybe lives in some other form, but but you can't have it again. You know, it can be performed a certain number of times. So it's this time-based nature of the work. Different time frames, yeah. And to be willing to let it go, because we can't hang on to things forever. I think everything's changing and everything's fading, right? We're talking about aging, you know? Now we're in our 40s. It's just how life is. And if we can make the most out of it. I mean, it just makes me think about death and just the... And death the is, timeline of your life that's not forever, no. you know. Death is ahead of us, and we don't talk about it very much. Yeah. yeah, and when you when you go see a performance, at the end of the performance, you don't get pissed off right. that it's over. It's just it's naturally it ends, and then yeah. Oh, okay. And that that's why I like to draw that comparison. So at the end of installation, it's always a little sad to bring something down, but maybe it could go up again. Maybe not. Maybe it does fade, but it was worth it that we had it. It's yeah. like this lifetime that we care so much. And if it's meaningful, then then it's good. And yeah. then in the end, we'll let it go. Yeah, and just 
thinking about taking things for granted. Like I had, I found out a friend of mine died recently from oh, a brain right. aneurysm. And it just made me really think about how easy it is to take for granted that you're going to wake up every day, you know? Mm-hmm. It um, is. It's so easy. And it just, <laughs> it, it's inspiring me. It's inspiring for me to hear you talk about when you do your work that you make the most of it or make the most of your time or make the most of your career, you know? Or maybe this life or make, maybe make the most of your day, you know, either be us talking yeah. now or spending it with my daughter. Just be there and, and know that this is great. And I was um, traveling this past week and I heard this from an artist and he said, everything's perfect already. Hmm. And I'm like, that's so hard to, that's so hard to agree to. Everything's not perfect. But then for a moment you realize, you know, what if life is just today and tomorrow we're supposed to, to be gone? Everything is the way it is already. And if you accept and appreciate it, make the most out of it. Yeah. It, it was really hmm. enlightening and challenging to, yeah. to think about. Yeah. That feels almost as challenging to me as thinking like, I'm enough. Yeah. I think that's something that we all, a lot of us struggle with. Like, right. am I enough? Or I have to keep doing this or be right. like this or learn this or we have to get better and more and i'm not enough yet yeah <laughs> or it's not as perfect yet as it could be our right. life or hmm. how do you know when to stop working on something then in that kind of same vein of like perfect and enough i guess i'm not looking for perfect i think that's setting ourselves up into a trap yeah. in a way because of that, then nothing will be good enough. And my beloved neighbor, I hope he listened to this, Rick would say, this is a Greek saying, don't make perfect the enemy of the good. Yeah. And I love it. It's, yeah, if it's good, then it's good. Then let's appreciate it. If we put in our good effort, we make the most out of it as much as we could, that we tried. And then we let it be. And then maybe everything's perfect already. Or maybe that's that's a problematic word. Let's, everything is good the way it is. Yeah. That's better. <laughs> Let, let's improve upon that. Um, but also, sometimes I think, you know, what if something happens tomorrow? Do I have regrets? Mm. And if you don't have a lot of regrets, then that means everything is really pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. You did your best. Mm-hmm. Or made the most of it. Yeah. But it also doesn't mean you would just sit back and say, everything's already good and I don't have to do anything. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, we'll have to keep going too. Um, So we're just at just over an hour Mm -hmm. and I want to respect your time. Um, I know there's a lot of, I mean, I know you have a lot of projects that you've done over the last 16 years, like you said, that we could talk about. I'm just wondering towards the end here, are there any projects in particular you'd like to highlight or maybe just your last this year has been you've done so much this year already is there anything you'd like to share or future plans or anything just to kind of uh, finish us up yeah so um, considering we're, we're here I'd love to just talk a little bit about the piece I have a big medium yeah um, I have a wall installation up at Big Medium and it's going to be up until the end of this month, September. Um, I think to end of September. Yeah. So I hope people have a chance to go see it. It's a wonderful show curated by Elisa Taylor Wendt. Mm -hmm. Really wonderful work and very diverse work and people from 
distant places. So it's definitely worth the trip to go see the gallery. So this project um, on display is entitled Fathom. And I started two years ago when I was reading the news about the migrant crisis in Europe. And I remember one day reading, you know, now there's 250,000 people that died in this crisis en route to somewhere, when they're crossing the sea, when they're walking, you know, the weak, the old and the young, and perhaps some healthy people too. So yeah. I was sitting by my computer thinking, 250,000, how many is that? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's such a numbing thing. Just like the migrant children crisis, when you hear these numbers or hear these stories, it's so abstract. Yeah, there was then, an amount of people all over the planet, like in a certain amount of time. It's during the European migrant crisis. Okay, this okay, was two okay. years ago. And okay. that's quite a lot of people when you think about yeah, it. I'd, yeah, I can't even imagine. And then they become 300,000. And then maybe the media lost track. And I remember seeing an article in New York Times. And this is an online article where they used one dot to represent every person that died. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, so it starts with the first line of red dots. And then they become a page. And then you start scrolling. And you scroll. Whoa. And you scroll. And you scroll. And you scroll and you lose count as how many times you've scrolled. And when you scroll, you don't even know how many pages there are. It's this long page. And I thought it's the most creative way of using a web page that can scroll. But it's this visually intense experience that mm. actually really touched me. Sitting by the computer, thinking about scrolling, all these dots passing through my eyes, maybe a millisecond that I could give to a section of them. Yeah, And that's lives of people mm. people like us you know it could be my my daughter's age it could be me it could be you it could be people that's listening they had a life they had a career they had a home they had a future they had a past right and that's just all gone but they're just that find that and i thought i with similar desires to do this recent project this summer i wanted to make a project and i started to think about what comes to mind So in Chinese, there's a saying that life or death could be as light as a feather or as heavy as a mountain. So Could you say that in Chinese? 死可以轻如鸿毛,也可以重如泰山. Thank you. Yeah. I just wanted to hear it. Sure, I'm happy <laughs> to. to I get to show off my Chinese. No, it's fine. <laughs> so when you have like a world leader or a hero that die course it's as heavy as a mountain but mm-hmm. all the people that died in this path this journey they're lighter than a feather they're a dot maybe even smaller you know someone might spend that time to scroll through the pages yeah and i don't remember if i even made it to the end it was long and we don't have that attention span so i wanted to make a project using feathers mm. and during my research i actually just discovered tarring and feathering mm. as a practice, as yeah. as this impossible pain that humans impose on other humans with the only intention being to punish, to humiliate in public. And I was kind of shocked to read that. And I realized my knowledge of history is limited and for Western history even more so. And when I saw that, I thought, then I must use tar and feather mm. together. Not referring to the exact history, not referring to the racial tension, but referring to this willingness to hurt and humiliate 
And scar, really. And scar other yeah. humans, right? Some of them do die in, yeah, in this process. They yeah. get killed. Um, I think about the shame, the burden, the humiliation, the pain, the suffering these people endure. And then maybe they die, so none of these are even recorded or even looked at. So what I did is not enough. It's not even a tiny bit of what I'm looking at. But this, as an artist, what I can do is humble. You know, I'm, I have this little effort. I'm going to put all of it in there to try to say something. And hopefully this visual experience relating to the New York Times article, the 250,000 dots, maybe could touch someone rather than just hearing a number in the news on NPR and it passes as yeah. you drive to work. So I made three projects using the tar and feather. This is the third one. Hmm. The first one was suspended in this building um, at Wayne State University. So people walked under and there were 10,000 feathers as this meandering river. I'm thinking about the flow of migrant walk walking through different landscapes. But all these tarred feathers, they're also hung, right? And you walk under and you have this quite beautiful experience, but then you, you have the scent of this burnt, it's pine tar, mm -hmm. so it's this burnt forest smell. So there's a really um, subtle sense of urgency. So that's one form. And the second form was a performance piece I did at the Detroit Institute of Art. So I had the feather suspended behind me as a screen, and I sat in front of it, and I sewed tarred feather onto my clothing mm. as this inward look as a human being i'm embracing or bringing this tarred stained feather onto myself as healing and redemption as mm -hmm. a hope for them anyway yeah so the third form after the first two projects i have all this feather and i wanted to bring it together to see the accumulative energy in one place and the most appropriate form is this circle so all the feathers are installed in the wall onto a sewing needle the needle is nailed into the wall directly so when you see it from the side you can barely see any um material hardware it'll look as if they're coming directly out of the mm -hmm. wall they're all pointing downwards so there's this quiet solemn energy that they have if you get closer you can still smell the scent of the tar mm -hmm. this burnt wood smell so that's fathom and right now it's a big medium yeah you can still see it yeah just real quickly i just wanted to ask you since you mentioned doing performance i know that or i believe that one of your first performances what it was it women in their work mm -hmm. the mending project and i just interviewed chris cowden the director yeah. executive director of women in their work and you i think have a a good relationship with them yeah. like what inspired you to actually put yourself into your pieces to do this first performance yeah first of all i do want to say i have such gratitude towards especially nonprofit organizations mm. their intention is to support is to provide this platform for artists sometimes young artists and women to work in this case for women artists and when i had my show at women their work this was my second show in austin i was a pretty newcomer you know to the art scene and i recall you know offering them this crazy idea and there, there's an interesting story sometimes the 
idea come to me after experiment with material. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it come after I view a space, then I have this vision that I want to provide for the space. The mending project came to me, I say, kind of like a writer. When you have a story that come to your head and you have to write it out as novel, like this, this, you know, I'm thinking about the, I'm blanking on her name. She talked about the muse. Mm. Um, I'm going to think of her name. She had a TED talk about the muse that come that you had to chase it down. Otherwise, it will run away. So the idea came to me fully formed. And I was actually looking for a place to put this project, which is suspended sharp scissors. And I will be under and sewing. And then I got to show a woman their work. So I said, I have this idea. What do you think? And they said, okay, let's look into it. This is great. I was so relieved. They didn't say, this is too dangerous. You know, yeah. People are coming to the gallery. What if they get cut and hurt? What if something falls on someone? So Chris was amazing. Like She's so willing and open. She, in fact, I think is very excited when she hears a challenging, yeah. risky yeah. idea. <laughs> and so we did get you know um, help from fellow artists and um, architects to evaluate the idea to see how safe it is to make sure that you know with this kind of support everything will be okay so i just want to say thank you to women their work without their support this piece might not exist yeah and this piece has not traveled because of safety there were a lot of interest every now and then i get an email and say can we show this i said you know these are real scissors and they weigh this much would you be okay and usually that become complicated for institutions Mm-hmm. Did I answer your question? Yeah, I, I I wanted to know more about like what the what inspired you to become a part of your okay. installation, doing these performances, the sewing, mm-hmm. and s- being under the scissors. Yeah, like I said, this idea was unusual because it came fully formed. Yeah, I wanted a cloud of scissors, and it came naturally because I've been doing needles and threads, working with them to create installations for a number of years. And I was working with scissors and I thought, I have to work with scissors. This is something that's important. So the reference of scissors are, um, in Chinese culture, scissors are women's tool. Men have hammers, saw, whatever, you name it. But scissors are always a woman's tool because she sews, she cuts fabric, she cuts her thread. And this type of scissors I use, they are iron they're extruded they can be sharpened over the years so a woman especially in the village might use a pair of scissors for decades just take care of it Mm. and sharpen it over time and when a woman needs to defend herself next time you see chinese movie especially old chinese movie if a woman needs to defend herself almost always she's picking up her pair of scissors yeah and (laughs) stay away i have my weapon yeah so the scissors are really sharp They are perfectly symmetrical and they're used to cut and stab, you know, as she needs to. And I love that sense of protection and power of this very humble household tool. So I suspended 1,500 pairs from the ceiling of women, their work, and I sat underneath and sewed. And I needed to. I was thinking about the women sewing in the village, as I mentioned to you earlier in our conversation, this idea of sewing as caring, as nurturing, as healing, 
So in the mending project, I'm channeling that energy. I'm not sewing for comfort of myself. I'm thinking when you're facing hovering threat, immense violence and aggression, what do you do? You can do something that's simple, that's persistent, that's healing, and that action itself is powerful. And I see it as the feminine strength. And when I give a talk and when I write about this, I talk about it's the power of water dripping down, eventually penetrating a rock. It's the soft persistence that is so powerful. It can do that to、mm. something that's so. Yeah, like the Grand Canyon. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> that's and like... that's from that's the power of water. And、yeah. I'm using that as a metaphor of this power of women's work. At women and the yeah, women in the world. I mean,、yeah. At women, that's why the project was really a perfect fit、yes. for that space. And I'm thinking about this action, and I think, you know, I don't want to say I believe in fate, but the idea came and this opportunity came, and they lined up. And it's the first time I sit under or sit in my environment to perform this woman's、mm. work at this gallery that's dedicated to support women's work.、Yeah. So it's a fateful connection. And、uh, I'm really happy that happened. To this day, I look back at that piece. I think it's solidifying my interest. You know, my house is the awakening, almost like understanding what I'm doing. And in this case, I'm like, now I need to come into the work. It doesn't happen every time, but when it's needed, I know, and then I come into work and I perform. And it's always something very simple. Mm-hmm. It's a simple action with intention to heal, to enable.、Mm-hmm. Can you say really quickly what's next for you? If you want to add anything, yeah. So、um, coming up, I'm going to the John Mitchell Center for a residency.、Mm. I will be there for six weeks this fall. I am so excited and looking forward to it. This is a Place that supports artists' work, and I'm just so fortunate to have received this invitation to do so.、Oh. And there's a little bit of guilt、um, as an artist's、mm. mother because I have a young child, and I haven't been away to a residency too much this summer. I was at Masmoka for two weeks, and I feel like that's kind of like a warm up. Yeah, let's see how we do and. Cyan, my daughter, did really well, and she's very adaptable. And she traveled a lot with us, and she was fine. And I started writing letters to her, which、oh, is a、nice. comforting thing for me. So I'm thinking about her a lot,、um, hmm. making plans for the residency. But it's it's such a gift to step away from the daily demands of my work and my family and my community just to go to a protected place to focus on work. Mm. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, and who knows what'll come out of it? It's it's、and、totally play experimentation. It's play. It's experimentation. It's making. It's is、um, getting lost in that space of making and things might spark.、Um, Elizabeth Gilbert. That was the writer. Yeah, I, I, was I thought that's what you were talking was, about. I was, I was just. It's because of the microphone. I'm like, I'm drawing a blank now, and now, now, now she's back. Yeah, big magic. Her work, her book. Is yeah,、great. and she has an amazing TED talk, and that's what I was referring to. Where she's like, when the muse comes, you have to grasp it; otherwise,、yes. you'll run away. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate everything you said. Did, is there any, anything you want to finish with? Anything? I want to thank you. 
Oh. And I look forward to continuing to grow together as, yeah. as artists. Um, and this is such a meaningful way of introducing artists to our community. So I thank you. Yeah, well, really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, me yeah. too. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Thanks for listening. One more thing before you go. If this episode or any other I've produced have helped you or added value to your life, please support the podcast so it can continue and grow. Just go to austinarttalk.com forward slash support. There you can find a link to my Patreon page, and there is also a PayPal option and an Amazon affiliate link. I couldn't keep doing this without your help. All the best to you and take care.